For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Ephesians 5.23 In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Claiming Jesus as your Lord and Savior has implications, as we know, a whole book worth of implications in the Bible. And that's just the beginning. And among the implications are implications for our domestic life, our home life, family life, and married life. If Christ is Lord of all, and he is, then he has a sovereign claim over every area of our lives, our kitchen, our dining rooms, our living rooms, and our bedrooms. There is, in fact, no sphere of life which Christ is not the rightful Lord over. And it's um, noteworthy that in every single one of St. Paul's letters, God the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to give messages to individuals, to congregations, and to address domestic life, family life, in different ways. The gospel affects our bed and our board. We know the principles that guide Christian eating. No gluttony, no drunkenness, don't eat idle meat if it offends your brother. Right? I mean, that's obviously less of a thing today. But, but in general, we're okay with God telling us how to live our dining room life. But when it comes to addressing marriage, which is anchored in the bedroom between husband and wife, we become a bit more uneasy. I do. That There's a sense of, like, God is God at meddling or overreaching but of course, a moment's reflection and says, no, like he made us and he made marriage. And so, of course, he um, can tell us how we can rightly steward these things. So when we hear Ephesians 5, as we do every three years in our lectionary, no matter what it says, we need to bind ourselves ahead of time to our faith commitments that God is true and God is good. And he made these things and he's spoken into them and it's ours to listen and obey. And this is necessary because right out of the gate with Ephesians 5, we get some tough leather. Wives, submit to your husbands. Actually, not just that. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Right away, I hear this against all the gross backdrop of patriarchalist abuse of this text. All the women who've hidden their pain from the church. All the ways in which false applications, false interpretations um, have hidden under the flag of this verse. And it's very difficult to hear any good, good meaning in it. In fact, my impulse is to want to run the other way, to just skip over this verse and pretend like it's not in the Bible or make it subordinate to some other text and kind of push it aside. But we can't do that because God alone is true. To paraphrase the disciples in today's Gospels, today's Gospel, they said to the Jesus teacher, where else can we go? You have the words of life. It's the same for us when it comes to something as infinite, I shouldn't say infinite, but as, as profound as marriage. Where else can we go than the author of marriage for a bedrock principles in which to live? So we have to stick with this text, even though the first whiff of it doesn't smell good. Submit to your husbands. Submit. I hope and pray that this verse might have the quality of blue cheese it doesn't smell good at first, but when combined with the other ingredients, reveals its goodness in the end. So let's look at those other ingredients. There are two adjacent things that must be understood. The first is why this is in the Bible at all. Why God is interested in shaping and directing the marriage relationship. The reason is because God is romantic. 
he is love. And so he loves love. He's not jaded by the broken forms of love that we experience. He's fully interested in ex- and, dare I say, excited about love. We learn from Ephesians 5 that marriage is actually a picture, a mini-painted image of the real McCoy, and the real McCoy is Christ and his church. And there's an important distinction here. Paul isn't just sort of reaching for some metaphor, like, how do I describe Christ and his church? Oh, it's kind of like marriage. It's the other way around. The thing that has existed before all time, before any humans ever existed, before the world was created, in the mind of God, was the Son of God being intimately and eternally united with God's people. And God gave us marriage, ordinary human marriage, between man and wife, as a clue, a picture, a shadow of that eternal relationship that Christ has with his church. Jesus' love for us is so strong, so pure, so committed and faithful and true, that the best picture we have of it in this life is that of a good marriage. And that's why God speaks into Christian marriage. He wants each of our little pictures of his son in our own marriages to be good pictures and he wants us to inhabit that a a love that is like his own true love the second necessary component to go with the blue cheese is the analogy god uses to explain an analogy christ and his church are described as husband and wife and husband and wife are described as being in a relationship like that of a head to a body And thinking this image through at sort of a strictly biological level is really useful for interpretation of understanding how husband and wife are to relate. So first note the mutual, just again, just strictly biology here, biological head, biological body. Look at the interdependence. The head can't exist without the body. And the body can't exist without the head. So right out of the gate we have um, abolished one of the false ways in which Ephesians 5 has been used as if women, as they've sometimes been presented to be, by false teachers, inferior to men. But that's not in this passage. Head and body need each other, and we're connected. Together we make up one whole organism. Neither is complete without the other. The brain and the head may direct the actions of the body, but if it directs it to painful things, head and body suffer together. And there are some things the body will not do no matter how much the head insists. If you try and hold your breath indefinitely, your body physically won't let you. Your body will override the head for life's sake. All of these reflections about head and body are necessary if we're to catch the meaning. So just one last prefatory note before we get straight to the blue cheese. I'm convinced that on this matter of God's direction to husbands and wives, we do better to attend only to what applies to us to not read each other's mail, as it were, but to focus only on our role. I um, am about the least sporty person that I know, (laughs) but I did have a less than glorious soccer career for a couple years from fifth to seventh grade. Uh, And I did learn in that time that in order for a good team spirit, the goalie needs to just focus on what he's doing. He shouldn't be telling the forwards what they should do. And the forwards shouldn't be telling the goalie how he should be a goalie. You should be focusing on your own roles if the team is going to play well together. So we must pay attention to our own roles, husbands and wives. So for the first time in the history of my preaching, I invite um, all of you men for the next few minutes to just tune out. Just ignore me. Think about other things. You're fine. This male is not for you. It's for the wives. So wives, if you'll listen, the scripture says... 
submit to your husbands. Honor, respect, and support them. The inverse of this is then, of course, to strive to not dishonor, disrespect, or undermine them to their face, to your friends, or to your kids. Allow them to be to you in some mystical way as a head is to a body. If this sounds odious, just have to name the two, those two elements that make it seem that way. On the one hand, what I've already named, the history of authoritarian misuse of this scripture, men subordinating women, but that, with, under the name of this, the auspices of this verse, but that misuse of it doesn't nullify the proper use of this verse. That's a core Anglican principle of interpretation. But on the other hand, we also have to acknowledge that the social and economic forces of the past hundred years have misled us to think of maleness and femaleness as sort of merely adjectives on neutral humanity, like a hair color. And that's part of why what underlies the gender confusion of our age, right? As if these are just incidental details and not at the core of who we are. Against this, if it's something like Ephesians 5 would reveal, no, this is at the core of who we are, man and woman. And so to be aware of that cultural prejudice we might have against this text as well. So when this direction is followed, submitting to your husband, obviously, or let me just say explicitly, not in anything that violates God's commandments or the moral law. Right? There's, there is a hierarchy of submission. We submit to God first and foremost and to the state and wives to husbands. But if the state says, break God's commandments, I'll say, no, my allegiance is to God first. Same thing husbands and wife. If God has given some clear commandment and the husband says, break it, our submission to God trumps the submission to husband, just to be crystal clear. But in all things godly, submitting to your husband, in that you icon forth how all Christians should carry themselves towards Christ in heaven. You are living pictures of Christian meekness and humility that all Christians, married or single, men and women, can look to and recognize and be inspired by, that's how I should be before the Lord. As to what that submission looks like in the day-to-day, I have no practical counsel because that's not my mail. I haven't been listening to, I haven't been trying to understand and apply that scripture because I'm not a wife, I'm a husband. So if you want practical application, I encourage you to talk to each other, to the older sisters in the Lord in this congregation that you respect and ask them, how do you submit to your husband? What does that look like? And encourage each other. I only know the extremes that submission is not. On the, on the far side, it means it's never demeaning to your husband. And on the far other side, it's also not ser- servile. It's not servility, because if it's servile, like, oh, oh, yes, sir, you know, that would actually undermine real connecting relationship, that romantic true love that God is interested in, as Christ has shown towards us. Right? He's not interested in having serfs to do his bidding. He's, he's like a bridegroom to the bride. And so servility is also actually off the other end would miss what submission actually looks like. Keep in mind the image of head and body. Okay, husbands, you can tune back in. Uh, Wives, feel free to tune out for a few minutes. Um, In Ephesians 5, wives are given two verbs to guide their iconing of the church. Husbands, you're given five verbs to guide your iconing of the head, Christ himself. In Ephesians 5, these are the five verbs. Love. Give up yourself, nourish, cherish, and hold fast. 
That's quite a list. The very first thing to notice is that these verbs enflesh what is meant by being the head. Notice what's not on this list. Being in charge, being independent, being the decision maker. All these worldly ideas that we think should go along with headship aren't there. And just like the Lord says to the disciples, it's the lords of the Gentiles who rule it over those under them. You must abandon this worldly vision of headship and receive the vision of headship the way Christ is ahead. And literally think of his head, pierced with thorns, dripping with sacrificial blood. That is the headship we are called to. Christian headship is not about taking charge. It's about taking up the cross. These are cross verbs, right? Give up yourself. That's the Christian call to self-denial and taking up your cross. So if you want to think, how can I be a good husband? Think, how has Christ done towards us? That's the standard to imitate. An infinitely high standard, to be sure, impossible to attain even the least degree without God's help. But it is the standard to which we are called to aspire. Two practical things I can share that um, I know that many of you husbands have been married longer than me, and so there's things you know that I don't know. So I'm just sharing these as sort of springboards or reminders. And they're things that I admit I fail at more than I succeed. But it's still my goal as a husband uh, to enflesh this, to, to try and have my wife's felt needs for rest met before my own. I wish I did that more. To try and do chores, and I know most of you husbands are earnest and hardworking and, and do a lot of chores, but to do chores in the order and manner that my wife would like rather than what just I think is best. They're small things, these are tiny things, but they're steps along the path towards loving as Christ loves. Okay, wives, you can tune back in. Everybody, we can tune back in together. Um, if we follow these commands with God as our helper, and that's the key piece, right? It's not just the sort of throwaway line. We cannot grow in this without the direct acting of the Holy Spirit in our lives, yielding to his gracious direction. And if we stick to reading our own mail, to focusing on our roles and not trying to direct our spouses to they should be a good husband or wife, by the mercy of God, Christian marriages can be radiant icons reflecting the glory of Christ's love for us and our love for him. And that's an encouragement to the church as we look on at Christian marriages. And it's a witness to the world that the world will see, oh, that, that this is an indicator of the kind of God that we serve who's faithful to us and loving and tender and serving. And a happy side effect is that ordinarily there will be a more profound contentment and joy in marriage if this is followed, but that's the accidental effect. The key, the core of the vision is one God has told us to, but because it shows forth his glory and his great love for us. Amen.